Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out this morning, this afternoon, turn in them to the book of Hosea, chapter 3. Hosea, chapter 3, and I'll give you a moment to, to turn there. The late Dr. James Boyce, who was one of the elder statesmen among PCA pastors and preachers, had been the senior pastor at uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He once preached on Hosea chapter 3, and his sermon was titled, The Greatest Chapter in the Bible. It's only five verses long, and indeed some of those verses might be a little hard to understand, and yet he found in this chapter such rich, poignant imagery that so clearly and manifestly displays for us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it pictures for us through this relationship of Hosea and his wife Gomer, the sacrifice of Christ to redeem his people from their slavery to sin, that he couldn't help but think that this chapter, short as it is, in this obscure corner of the minor prophets, was indeed the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I hope we see something of that Today, as we look in these verses, we'll find that this does indeed point us to Christ. This does, as well as anywhere in the Old Testament, point us to Christ, help us to rejoice in what He's done for us, help us at the same time to have a new sense of our own sinfulness and to be humbled anew in that, and yet at the same time to rejoice in Christ. For those two things have to come together. You can't do one without the other. And this chapter leads us in both. So let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? This is the word of the Lord from Hosea, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word given by the inspiration of your spirit in order that we might know Christ and him crucified, that we might humble ourselves, turning away from our sin, learning to hate it, learning to be humbled by it, and that we might rejoice in the salvation of Christ on the cross, that we might grasp him by faith and never let him go. We ask now that your spirit will be our guide and our teacher opening the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things in this chapter of your word. It's in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I want to share with you today a story that I, I think I've shared with some of you before, and yet I want to remind you of it again. It's one of my favorites. It's the story of two of my friends, Matt and Amy, and their wedding day about eight years ago. Uh, we had attended their wedding, and in some ways it was unlike any other wedding that we had been to before. It was in an old brick 
church. It was historic. You had to drive out about six miles of dirt road into rural South Carolina to get to it. And it was just in the middle of the woods. And it was an old brick building. It had no electricity in it at all. Uh, But it did have very large, clear glass windows that when they were open, filled the sanctuary with light and made it quite beautiful. But that's not why the wedding was unique. It was the way the wedding was conducted. When everything started, the minister was at the front of the stage facing the congregation, and Matt, the groom, was standing down in the middle facing the minister, who was his brother that day. And the minister began by pointing out the fact that here in America these days, the the wedding day everyone knows is the day of the bride the day that the bride gets to pick what she wears and what all her friends wear and and what flowers they hold and what music is played and what is served for the meal and what kind of cake there is. Everything about it is up to the bride and she is really the, the centerpiece of the day and everyone knows that. And woe to that person who messes with the bride on her wedding day. But he said, it has not always been so, he said in the Bible the wedding day was the day of the groom. It was the day of the groom in which he was celebrated as having uh, victoriously, successfully gone and won himself a bride. He had found a girl and wooed her to himself and, and proposed to her and she had said yes and now she was prepared and beautiful. And even then, still the, the bride was dressed up and beautiful and radiant and shining and yet everyone knew the beauty of the bride was for the glory of the groom. That they would see her radiant and shining and say, This groom has done very well for himself. He has gotten for himself this bride who is beautiful and radiant and their wedding day has come. He says this was the day of the groom. And so then he explains that this really is the story of the Bible, that Christ is the groom, the church is the bride of Christ, and it's Christ who goes and finds his bride, has to go after her when she was not lovely or beautiful, But she was unlovely, unfaithful to him. He went and he wooed her to himself. He won his bride. And he was the one who had done the work of making her beautiful, making her radiant and with splendor and every good thing. And then the wedding day comes and the beauty of the bride is to the glory of the groom. And he looked at Matt who was standing there looking at him. He said, Matt, go get your bride. And Matt turns around and he marches down the center aisle and out the back doors of the church and the doors closed. And we sort of all sat there for a minute wondering what exactly was going to happen next. And after a minute or two, all the shutters in the sanctuary had been closed and one by one they started to open. And as they were opening, the room was just filling with light and getting brighter and brighter. And finally the back doors opened again. And there was Matt with his bride on his arm. And she was beautiful and they were victoriously marching back down the front aisle of the church, back to the front, where they would take their vows. And from there it sort of went on as expected, but this very imagery was was all changed. Rather than the ordinary wedding like my own, where the groom was just already standing there and someone else brings the bride to him, already beautiful, already prepared, and just hands her hand to him as though he's sort of this dope, which maybe I was, who couldn't win her for himself, but he says, here you go. Don't mess this up. (laughs) Rather, at this one, he said the groom had to do the work, go get your bride. And they pictured this imagery of the scriptures where Christ is the one who takes initiative. 
where Christ is the one who takes it on himself to go and to find himself a bride who, when he finds her, is not beautiful, but he makes her beautiful. He cleanses her, he washes her, he purifies her, and he makes her radiant. He makes her beautiful so that she becomes his beautiful bride, all to the glory of the groom. Christ is the groom who goes and searches, who finds her and redeems her. Even though she is enslaved, he redeems her. He has to buy her back. Christ is the hero who wins his bride, takes her to the feast. And what we see in Hosea is part of this story. It's the beginning of the story. Here, what we have pictured in this lived-out parable of Hosea and Gomer is the beginning of this story where God is using His command to Hosea to go and to marry Gomer, that's part of how He shows us in this parable what it means for Christ to be our husband. Of what it means for us, what what kind of wife we are for Him at first, that, that we ourselves are prone to wander. We're not a lovely bride, but Christ is the one who goes out and searches for us, who finds us and makes us His. What we have in Hosea, it's the story of the groom. It's the story of Christ winning for himself a bride and his glory in the redemption of his bride. What I want to do today is just walk through these verses one at a time at first and then try to draw out three lessons from this chapter. So let's walk through it together and then we'll get to three lessons to learn from Hosea chapter 3. If you remember when we were in chapter 1, which has been several weeks ago, we began this story of Hosea and Gomer. And the first thing that the Lord says to Hosea when he comes to him, the Lord comes and he says, Hosea, this is the call of God on your life. Go find a woman of whoredom, that that word, it shows up all the time in this book, and marry her. Take her home to be your wife and have children with her. And so he does. He goes and he finds Gomer and he brings her home and they get married. And we remember that they have three children, and we saw in chapter 1 that the whole purpose of this command that seems so bizarre and so shocking is that God wants to illustrate for Israel as well as for us what his love for us is like. We saw in chapter 1 that that Gomer really is meant to be a picture of, of God's people, of us, that when we read the story, we're not meant to identify with Hosea, we're meant to identify with Gomer, and the story is to say, That is what God's people are like because they are so faithless. They were prone to wander. When we hear of how they uh, would go after other gods, they loved cakes of raisins. That was part of the ceremony of worship in the temples of Baal. And that's what they were engaging in. And so God calls Hosea to, to illustrate what Israel is like by finding this woman who's a prostitute to be his wife. And they have three children together. And those children, we remember their names, Jezreel, No Mercy, Not My People. Those names were signs to the people of the coming judgment of God upon them if they did not turn from their ways. All of this was very shocking, and we remember it's meant to be shocking. That was the whole point that God was trying to make, is to help open our eyes to see that sinning against the Lord is shocking. Then when we consider who God is for us and what he's done for us, that we would turn and seek other gods we should be alarmed by that. We should be shocked, just as we are when we read what God asks Hosea to do. It's meant to be shocking. And so that's the story that we're picking up here in chapter 3 in verse 1. Hosea has married Gomer, and now she has left. 
She's walked out of the marriage. We knew this was coming, didn't we? That's the type of woman that she was when he married her. And so we could see this, and now it's happened. She has left. And even in this, it's meant to be all part of the lesson. It's all part of the metaphor of this marriage for us is that that's what God's people do to him. When we run after other gods, when we seek to find our greatest joys and our greatest delights and things other than him, he says that's what's happening. Walking out on the Lord. He's opening our eyes to both the offensiveness of our sin as well as what will come next, the the great love of God for his people. And so she was married to Hosea and now she's gone back out walking the city block. It could be that if we only had chapter 1, we might want to turn this into something of a Disney fairy tale and say, okay, she's a little rough around the edges, but there's a heart of gold in there somewhere. She's really good on the inside, and, and the story just doesn't let us do that. There's no heart of gold. She's not, she's not good on the inside. Maybe we need to think, you know, Hosea, he's a great guy. He'll have a good influence. He'll clean her up. No. No. That's not how it goes. After they're married, Gomer goes and leaves him. She leaves him. And and here is where the Lord comes in verse 1, and he speaks to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, go again and find her. Go out, find her, and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. I have to imagine at this point, Hosea is getting a little bit nervous any time God shows up to give him a new command. Because this is getting pretty difficult for him. In case it wasn't hard enough in chapter 1, it gets harder here. It has to, because he has to give us the picture of what God's love for his people is like. And that's why he comes to Hosea and says, All right, go again. Go again and love her, although she is seeking out after other people. Go again, Hosea. Go again. What do you think Hosea was feeling at this point? He had to be a little bit smug. He knew this was going to happen. He knew he was the good one in this marriage. He was the righteous one. He was the victim here. He's the one who had been the the good guy, the holy one. He was a prophet after all. Everything that's gone wrong here, it's, it's on Gomer, it's on her. He deserves an easier life than this. Do you wonder if maybe Hosea is a little relieved when she leaves? Finally, he can find a proper wife, someone who's not going to have these problems. You just wonder if he's... Maybe a little relieved. He had done her this favor. She had gotten so much better than she deserved, and she walked out on it all. That's how she feels about what I've done. Let her go. Let her go. She has no idea how good she had it. I imagine Hosea was a little bit relieved, and yet here comes God. Hosea, go again. Go again. She's out, she's out there wandering the streets. Go find her. Find her, track her down. He doesn't just say find her. He says love. Love a woman who's loved by another. Bring her home. She's your wife. Why go again? Because that's what God does. That's what God does. It's what he says right here in verse 1. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. The whole point of this command is as shocking as it is and as difficult as it had to be for Hosea to hear, is that's what God is like. That's what God's love for us is like. It's meant to be a a symbol, a metaphor, a lesson for us and what the love of God looks like. You know, 
We talk about Ephesians chapter 5, the great command that we hear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, do we know what that looks like? This is what it looks like. This is the love of Christ for his people that, that when they leave, when they are seeking after other gods, he goes out after them. He doesn't leave them and sit there in his self-righteous smugness, running thoughts through his head of how good he has been and how she's getting what is coming to her. No, he goes out after her. Though the ninety and nine would be in the fold, he goes out after the one that's left. He goes out to seek and to, to find what we have in Hosea. This is, this is no model marriage. It's a train wreck. Don't we often think, we look at the best marriages in our churches and we hold up those husbands and wives who have been together and had a loving family and we say, what a model of the gospel. Well, yes, you know, we know what we mean there. But it's interesting, isn't it, that when God wants to give us a model of the gospel, he doesn't give us a pretty marriage. He gives us Hosea and Gomer. He says, this is the model of the gospel. It's not two beautiful people loving each other. It's one beautiful savior and one train wreck of a bride. That's the model of the marriage that we get, the model of the gospel that we see here in the scriptures. The wife who's prone to wander, that's us. And not only does he have to go out and find her in the streets and love her, but look at verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. He buys her. We don't know exactly why, but for some reason in her wandering of the streets, something has happened. She's not even free to come home on her own anymore. She's gotten herself maybe in slavery, maybe she's in debtor's prison, maybe she's an indentured servant, maybe she's a prostitute working for an owner. We don't know. But whatever it is, there is now a cost to Hosea. And whatever pride he had left, now he realizes he has to go again and love this woman and pay. He has to sacrifice from himself his own money, his own dignity, in order that he can do this. There is cost involved to him. And there's a spiritual reality here too, isn't there? That Christ tells us that we, as those who are prone to wander, as those who are a sinful people, we enslave ourselves to sin. He tells us in his word that we are not of ourselves just free to come back because we are slaves of sin. It's Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of one whom you obey? either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. That's why we need Christ. That's why we don't simply need a teacher who can teach us good morals. We need a savior who can redeem us. One who can pay the price required to buy us back so he can take us home again. Because we too find ourselves enslaved. And that's why Hosea goes and he has to find her and then he has to pay. He has to buy her back. It's going to cost him something. There's sacrifice required. And you know what's even more humbling for Hosea? It's not even that big of a price. It's not even that big of a price. But the uh, Deuteronomy tells us to redeem a, a servant costs 30 shekels. This is 15. No one else wanted her. And yet he goes and finds her and loves her. And he says in verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So here Hosea is going to take her home, back to the house. He says, now you must dwell here. You can't 
can't go out again. There's a progression. He's told to love her. He redeems her at a price. And now he charges her. She must be faithful to him. She's not supposed to wander anymore. She's to be faithful to Hosea. Hosea has a claim on her. right? He, he bought her. He paid for her. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. But of course, the order, remember, the order is so important. First, he redeems her, brings her home, and then he charges her to be obedient, to be faithful, to stay, not to wander anymore. First, he redeemed her before that command, before the obedience was even charged. And he says at the end of the verse, so will I be to you. So will I be to you. The promise here is of a faithful covenant partner that he says to her, I will be faithful to you. You must be faithful, but I'll be here for you as well, supplying all of the benefits of our covenant relationship, everything to you. And then verses 4 and 5. Now, he begins to speak here more theologically. It's not in the metaphor of the imagery anymore. He says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now what we see here is is a connection. Just as Gomer the wife was put through this disciplinary purification process where she was not to go out anymore, and the purpose was that she would again love her husband, so it is with God's people, the people of Israel. He is saying to them, God is going to put you through a disciplinary period of purification. And the point will be that in the end of it, you will come back to the Lord and you will love Him and you will seek Him. You will seek David, your King, and you shall come to Him and to His goodness in the latter days. Now notice where we've come from in verse 1. In only five verses, we've made it from verse 1, where Gomer goes out again, all the way to verse 5, where now she where Israel, Gomer, the bride, comes back to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Why? All because of the work of Christ. All because of the Savior, the Redeemer. He's the one who had done this work. He's the one who had taken all the initiative to get this done. It's Hosea, whose name means salvation, whose name comes from the same root as the name Jesus. We can't miss this imagery being given to us here that this is the chapter that gives us the picture of Christ. Now, let me draw out three points from this. First, the love of God is more tenacious than your sin. The love of God is more tenacious than your sin. The first lesson we learn from this lived-out parable of Hosea and Gomer is to see the radical tenacity of God's love for sinful In chapter 1, the lesson of the lived-out parable was to see our sinfulness because we were compared to Gomer. In chapter 3, the lesson really is the opposite, to see the love of God for his people. Even though Gomer is prone to wander, she leaves again and Hosea will love her again. Why? Because that's the way the Lord loves his people. You see, we remember that God could have given Hosea words to preach. That's what he did with most of the prophets. He could have given words to preach, to come and to teach to Israel. You know what? We have a faulty definition of God's love. Let's begin to understand what his love is like. And he could have defined it for them. 
But how much more gracious of God that he didn't give us a definition, but in this point he would give us an example. And he would give us a picture to see with our eyes that this is what the love of God is like. This is what we need to see. We need a picture to see a man who's married and who defies every cultural expectation of what's required of him at this point. Everyone in the world would have said to him, you're free. It's, it, this is not on you. It's not your fault. Go. Live a new life. Start over. Be happy. But God says, no, that's not what the love of God is like. It goes after sinners. And when they wander again, he goes after them again. Even though she would have spit in the face of his love and generosity, he doesn't give up on her. He doesn't give up on her. Isn't this the story of the whole Bible? Isn't this the story of the whole, whole Scripture that God's people are always falling into sin. They're always going after other gods and God does not give up on them. I feel like if, if God were anything like me, the Bible would be about three chapters long because we'd get to Genesis, that sin, that's it. <laughs> but not with God. Not with God. He, he does not give up. He makes the promises. I'm going to send a redeemer. Yes, it's your fault. It's all on you. But I will redeem you. I will send my son to take the penalty for what you've done in order that I can bring you back home, in order that I can woo you back, change your hearts, win you over, and have a glorious homecoming in the end. That's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love. How? In this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the same thing. This is what we see in Hosea is God demonstrating his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us that Hosea demonstrates his love in that while Gomer was going out and sinning against him, he sacrifices for her to win her back. You just can never out-sin the love of God because that's the definition of the love of God, that it pursues sinners. 1 John 4 says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the very definition of love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So lesson number one, uh, the love of God is more tenacious than your sin is. Here's the second lesson. The death of Christ accomplishes more than you think. The death of Christ accomplishes more than you think. It's easy for us to say it briefly, easily, that... The death of Christ is sufficient to forgive our sins, yes, and amen, but, but see the whole process. See what it really means for that to be true. That in dying for our sins, they're not merely forgiven, but he also cleanses and purifies us from them. He not merely removes the guilt of sin, that he does, but he also purifies us and removes the stain of sin. He removes the corruption of sin that corrupts our hearts. So he purifies us and sanctifies us. There's a song we sing. It says, Be of sin the double cure. Save from guilt and make me pure. It saves from guilt and the power of the corruption of sin. And isn't that what we see in Hosea? We see a wife who not merely needs to be forgiven. She does. But she also needs to be purified. She needs to be changed. She needs to be cleansed. She needs to be freed from the power of her sin because we see that Gomer is powerless. She's powerless against this. She's a slave to her sins. She needs to be rescued. She needs someone who can give her a new heart that's no longer prone to wander. That's her only hope, isn't it? 
for someone to change her very heart because she's not a beautiful bride. She needs someone who can make her into one. That's the picture of Hosea. And, and now, only when we understand Hosea 3, really, can we start to read Ephesians 5. If you remember Ephesians 5, turn there if you have your Bibles open. We, I mentioned it before, but Ephesians 5, verse 25. Here's what he says, and these are the verses we know so much. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see how far we've come from Hosea chapter 3 by this point? But you have to have Hosea 3 in the background to understand what does that mean? Well, look at where we started. We started with Christ going after his people who were compared to Gomer walking the streets, who were faithless, always running after other gods, defiled and sinful. And here's the love of Christ that says this is what it does so that he gave himself up for her, that's his sacrifice, why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's Christ who has done the work of purifying a bride for himself, that we might be radiant and glorious, to give glory to the groom. That was the picture of Matt going out the back of the church and going to find himself a bride. And, and it was sort of assumed that he, you know, the storyline in the middle there is that he finds a bride who's maybe beaten up in the ditch. And he has to pick her up and bring her and get her ready and make her sparkle and shine all beautiful for him and then bring her into the church. That's what Christ has done to make us without spot or wrinkle or blemish. The same groom who had to go buy his betrothed back, had to pick her out off the auction block. Now, the power of his love is such that he can take her and purify her, make her beautiful. This is the story of the groom. This is the story of the work of Christ for his people. Now, here's the last lesson. And it's really more of an application, it's more of a question. How should we then live as gomers? who have been brought home by our faithful Savior. How do we then live? How can we go forward with this storyline in our mind being able to take our lives and put them into this storyline? And I just want to at least make one suggestion and ask, how does a, a chapter like this change the way you think about the remaining sin in your life? 